Welcome to the SNC Shop Talk podcast. I'm your host, Dorian Grenier, and this is episode number three. In today's show, we'll cover topics that would fall under the realm of sports psychology. As I mentioned in our last episode, I believe there is much more that goes into developing an athlete than just lifting weights, sprinting, jumping. And some athletes might possess all the physical qualities and skills necessary to be successful, but can't seem to put it together on game day when it counts most. So I'm thrilled to be joined by Laura Walsh today. She's a registered psychologist, sports psychologist, hypnotherapist, and psychotherapist who's worked with countless athletes at the elite level over the last five years and has also competed as an athlete herself at a high level, first in gymnastics and then later on in triathlon and running. Hi, Laura, and welcome to the show. Hi, Dorian. Um, Why don't we jump right in um, to a big topic that keeps coming up um, in a variety of different sports, and that's choking. Um, why does it happen, and um, how do we prevent it? Hmm. Um, a short answer is choking is overthinking. So there's two kind of parts to the brain that are, well, there's many parts, but for this topic, for choking, um, there's your motor cortex, and then there's your prefrontal cortex. So when you are learning a skill, you are breaking it down and you are um, dissecting it and thinking about it and using cognitive, your cognitive abilities, and that uses the frontal cortex. But the whole idea behind practice is to do it enough times with enough repetition that then, then that then goes into the motor cortex. So what happens to an athlete is if they are under extreme pressure, then they go to the frontal, the prefrontal, the PFC, prefrontal cortex. And once that happens, the motor cortex backs out. So then the move becomes very stiff, very broken down, um, not smooth, and you're definitely not going to be in the zone. Interesting. So is that kind of across all different types of sports? I know um, you've obviously having uh, work with lots of gymnasts when it's really about executing a, a routine very well, very precisely, but we also seem to see that phenomenon in team team and court sports, right? Like a basketball player, for example, that has all the skills they've, you know, went like put put in thousands and thousands of shots in the gym. They know they know how to play the systems, um, but for whatever reason, they can't seem to perform. Or is it fair to say they're just kind of in their own in like in their own head at that point? Yeah. That's that's a pretty good comment. A lot of times, what happen, happens with choking is it's it's the pressure. It bears down, and, and and athletes start to think. Some sports, I think, are more susceptible, and those are sports that have time lags in them. So, for example, um, tennis. There's a moment where the momentum is stopped, and there's time to think, and also there's time to ruminate about maybe a bad a bad um, shot or a bad hit or something, um, <clears throat> and that will take you out of the present moment. So some sports like like cricket, um, tennis, golf, golf is classic chokers, um, because they start to think and analyze what they're going to do because they've had time, a break in between the momentum of the movement. Now, your example of basketball players, um, there's probably more choking in free throws or in, you know, penalty shots or whatever versus in the actual game. Right. 
Because once, like uh, endurance athletes, once they're moving and flowing, um, there's less chance for choking because you keep keep the momentum going. And so that's a di- in endurance sports like triathlons or running. That's a different kind of choking than than maybe uh, like in rugby or um, like for example the All Blacks. They were for years known as chokers. Because, oh really? Yeah. And it's because they would um, get to the final part of a tournament, right? For the example, the world championships. And they were the best in the world, ranked number one. They, you know, had just amazing um, players. But for some reason, they couldn't quite get to that final game, that World Cup game. And one of the things for them, they're a really good example of choking. Um, they would the expectations that were placed on them were so huge that they would get to the end game and they would be thinking about the the expectation and not about being in the moment in the game. So after the world championships where they got, uh, they bailed it, they didn't even make the semifinals. um, They hired psychologists, sports psychologists, and they learned how to stay in the moment. So for example, Richie McCaw, he was their captain. After a play that didn't quite go the way they wanted, he would stamp his feet like three times. And what that meant is, I'm here now, forget what happened, like, leave that alone, we're here now. And um, another player uh, would look to the farthest corner of the stadium, and for him that was like, think of the big picture. Forget about that tiny detail that didn't quite work, think like the big picture. So what's really interesting about choking is... It's a very individual thing, like tennis players, like pre-practice routines are so important to avoid choking because it, what it does is it calms the brain down, the pre-practice routine and says, now we're going to hit the ball. Like Jimmy Connors would bounce the ball like 20 times or the, one of the best players to watch is Rafael Nadal because he has these little quirks he does right before he serves and it's exactly the same before every serve and if he doesn't his brain thinks we're not serving and so he doesn't serve well so that's one way of kind of overcoming choking and it it just it's it's about telling the brain you're safe you know what to do and and being in that optimal arousal so neither too hyped up nor flat and that's what you want to be and and so choking is overthinking that's very interesting like i mean If we look even in, um, you know, sports like track and field, for example, where let's say there is an Olympic final or world championship or whatever, I guess the the athletes that have the ability to almost like kind of put themselves into the moment and stay in that moment. Um, those seem to be the ones that can perform consistently at a high level. So it's almost like a form of stoicism, right? Separating yourself um, from the big, like everything else that's kind of around you, mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. and really like having that ability to stay present. Yep. Right. Yep. Yep. Like it's also really interesting. So let's um, let's take golf for example. The ability to hold focus and concentration, that is finite every day. You have so much. Um, so you to, to hold focus, that kind of focus and concentration, to be able to hit the ball where you want it, how you want it, for example, um, that's, that's 
that's really tiny we have every day. So for a golfer in a game to hold that concentration for four hours uh, is probably not that doable. So what a golfer has to be able to do is be able to go into that concentration state, come out of it, go back in, come out of it. And like with track and field, for example, a heptathlon or whatever, when there's many events and the day is long, I mean, you can't stay in that perfect arousal zone all day. Your brain just goes, no, we, we still live in the cave, right? We're still cavemen. So the ability to be able to turn on the focus and concentration when you need it under pressure, that's, that's key. If you can be able to do that, then you're miles ahead of everybody else. So you mentioned, um, I guess, a couple of strategies. Um, how does, I guess, what are what are some of those tools that athletes can use, um, I guess, in practice scenarios? Because I'm assuming it's a skill that can be learned. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, it depends. So um, if you find you're overthinking and the prefrontal cortex is clogging things up, okay, you have got to fill that with something else. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll tell athletes count backwards by 10 or do math, simple math. One plus one is two, two plus two is three. Because your brain can only think sequentially. We, we cannot multitask. We can't. So if you are clogging up or filling up the prefrontal cortex with a song, um, rhymes or something, then it's not going to be thinking about your execution of a move. So you're going to have the hours of practice and you're going to be able to go in the motor cortex and everything will happen smoothly with flow, with rhythm. Um, there won't be any, um, st- you won't be stuck or you won't get stiff. You don't want to be stiff. So in competition, um, you do not want to be thinking about how to execute. You want to be competing. But in training, that's when you can allow the brain to break a skill down and to look at it. But I think also um, it's really important in training to practice this, this going in the zone and being able to stay in there. People think, oh yeah, I just have to visualize once and I got it. Sports psychology, the psychology of training the mind to be able to perform under pressure is just like any other training. You have to practice it and practice it and practice it. Now, since we talk about visualization, is that something where, you know, in, in a practice scenario, you know, I've heard things before, like, um, you know, athletes would go and really like visualize a certain, a certain play mm-hmm. or, um, you know, a situation in a game where there is pressure and they try to make it very real, like almost imagining how would the ball feel in that situation? How would um, they try to incorporate as many different sensory well, I guess outlets, mm-hmm. so to speak, to make that to make that more realistic. Is that is that something that applies to that practicing that visualization yep. across the board? Yeah. So, visualization is you're using one sensory modem, your eyes. And yeah, granted, our eyes give us eighty percent of our information. If you can't see it happening in your brain, your body's not going to be able to do it. But I am of the belief that the more senses you bring into the visualization, the more real it is, the more um, real it is in your brain. So, for example, sometimes what I'll do with triathletes I will, or swimmers, I will have them visualize, but with the tactile sense of what they're going to be swimming in. So they, 
put on their swimsuit, they hold their goggles, or they put their goggles and cap actually on. So they feel the pressure of the goggles around the eye sockets. They feel the pressure of the cap on their head. They feel, you know, how they would feel in the competition. And then what another good thing is if they sit on the side of the pool and put their feet in the water and kick so they will feel that water as they're doing the visualization exercise. And again, you try and put into what are you going to hear? What are you going to taste? Like, are you going to taste the breakfast you had that morning? Um, As many senses, if you can get them into that visualization, it's going to be that much more real and that much more effective. Very cool. Now, kind of along the lines of being able to, you know, stay, stay focused and forget those past mistakes, like when you're in the moment. Yeah. Um, let's say you're in one of those situations already. You've made a couple mistakes, like let's say in a game. And, you know, like, is there a way where you can, you know, using those tools, kind of get back out of that vicious loop of, oh, now I'm overthinking, yep. I'm thinking more. And so the brain kind of has two minds. You have your logical mind, you have your emotional mind. If those two get in a fight, the emotional mind will always win. Always. The emotional mind is not clear thinking. You, 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 your emotions are like erratic. Right. So one of the best ways to bring yourself back into the moment, bring yourself into the present, is to breathe. As little as three deep breaths. Now, the best way to do it, especially if you're arousal level, if you're anger, you're angry at yourself, you're angry at whatever, you, that's, you're, you're stimulating what's called the sympathetic nervous system. That's the fight or flight. And that will increase the arousal too much. So you got to lower that down a bit. And so one of the ways to do that is to turn on the parasympathetic nervous system. And the way to do that is to nose breathe. So mouth breathing is the brain is going, okay, tiger close, can't rest, and sympathetics on fire, ready to fly, fight, flight. The parasympathetic is the brain goes, ooh, calm, you're cool, you can eat, you can sleep you're safe. So that using your breath through the nose as little as three times, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, three times, uh, it will shift your nervous system so much. And, and again, the stress will go out of the prefrontal cortex because stress clogs up that as well. And if there's too much stress in the front part of your brain, you can't think about the next play. You're, you're just, you just, it's called brain, you get brain fog. Right. So there is actually such a thing as almost get, catching your breath. Yeah. Right. And um, it's interesting where you explain it. Now, I'm curious, the majority of athletes that you come across, mm-hmm. I would assume they're very far on the kind of sympathetic overdrive mm-hmm. uh, when we talk about choking. Mm-hmm. But do you find that there might be a small percentage that they actually got to work themselves up yep. because they're almost yep. too relaxed, yep. too calm? Yeah. Um, so their performance levels, yep. um, like in order for them to perform at the highest level, they actually need to go the opposite way. Exactly. Exactly. Because you never want to go into a competition meet flat. Right. That's probably even worse than going into it too overhyped. Overhyped will drain you, but flat. So one way you can, you know, if I don't, your um, listeners might have watched in some of the change rooms, you know guys beating on their chest mouth breathing mouth breathing mouth breathing super high short quick shallow breaths and uh, the brain just goes oh okay a fight coming or tigers around the corner Uh, get ready pumped up and 
the nervous system, the cortisol, the adrenaline, all the neurotransmitters, all the hormones, they just, yeah, definitely. That's, that's one of the techniques, but as an individual athlete, you need to know, do you go into events too hyped up or do you go into too flat? You need to be able to be self-aware to know that I'm not, I'm not at a high enough level on my arousal. I need to pump it up or, oh, I'm, I'm like shaking here with nerves. I, I need to be able to bring it down. Right. And this is, I guess, a fine line. I, I'm, I'm imagining something like that in a game type situation. If we talk about field court sports, is probably most relevant at the beginning of the game yeah. when you're, yeah. you know, about to go out there and start. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, one of the concepts that keeps coming up over and over in athletics is that term of flow, yeah. right? Where you actually don't want to be thinking. Um, and then sometimes athletes are being asked or interviewed, and you see it after the game like what did you think in this situation and they can barely remember it they can't they can't because the motor cortex is so taken over um that their memory is is they don't have the memory of it and um that's ideally i've got a few athletes who now they i call them quirky brains you know they've got interesting brains but they have the ability to go and flow um so easily they don't see that as a gift. I'm like, I'm, I'm drooling. <laughs> I'm like, do you know how hard that is to do? Um, but that's ideally where you won't have much memory of the whole experience and time gets distorted in the flow, which is very interesting. Time is not, it's not like a real time. It moves fast. And actually, as you're doing the skill, it's in slow-mo. So you almost have that extra tenth of a second to think, to react, because you're so calm with arousal that you've got the exact amount of, of adrenaline or whatever to do the play, execute it perfectly, but enough calmness to be able to see the play almost before it happens. It's, it's, a, it's a piece of art. It's beautiful to see. Right. So, well, yeah, I mean, effortless, right? effortless they're not thinking at all they're not thinking no um, um ideally that's one of the places you want to be as many times as possible playing yep. your sport right or yep. being on at, a, you know, on at the big on the biggest stage yeah yeah like to be able to do that when you're under pressure but it's quite interesting elite athletes us mortals we go how do they handle that pressure they don't see it as the same way we do they, first of all, are very rarely aware of the crowds. I mean, they kind of are. It's white noise to them. Um, secondly, they're focused on it, and they know exactly what they need to do on any given moment. That's, that's the superstar athlete. And the other thing is um, they know exactly what they have to do on any given moment. Um, and so they don't, there's no stress about having to overdo it. They know what they have to do enough to get the job done. And yeah, so they're they're in this perfect window. Now, what about let's say there is um, there is a player, um, maybe even one of the star players on a team, mm -hmm. and he's known to have these kind of emotional outbursts at times, right? Um, where they can't seem to almost control, mm -hmm. and sometimes uh, it works out for them. They make amazing plays. Right. Um, and, but then there's the other times where it works against them or the success of the team um, with an athlete like that. If um, 
I guess it's a it's a it's a hard choice to make, right? If you're if you're the psychologist, mm-hmm. um, how do you make that decision? To well, maybe that kind of ruthlessness is what makes that athlete really good. Now it might have a downside to it, but how much do you want to take that away from from them as um, as a as a person, right? How much do you want to kind of get them to dial it down. yeah dial it down a bit? at the expense of potentially having amazing plays as well. Uh, That's a very interesting question because what I'm hearing is you've got this individual within a team. Right. And I don't look at the team as a bunch of individuals. It's like one unit. But that one individual is, you know, can't get in sync with the rest of the team. It's It's not like... The rest of the team is lower on the arousal level, and this guy's super high. The, the team has to work symbiotically; like it's, they almost got to work as like as if they're just one person. Um, the thing is, emotions are super awesome to have. Um, like whenever I've got athletes, they go, "Oh, I'm so nervous." I'm like, "Fantastic! Nerves are your friends. They give you superman energy. They are great." But you have to be able to control them, not them controlling you because when the emotions control you you're you are actually out of control and if you are out of control how can you be at your best you you can't so if this player if we can give him the skills and it's 99 percent of the time for people it's not that they don't want to it's that they don't know how so you give them the skills to be able to to like regulate their emotional level and use their emotions to their advantage within a game setting. They'll ninety nine percent of elite athletes, especially team players, will want to go on board. Occasionally, you'll get the prima donna, but I have this saying: I say the playground rights. Right? If you've got one guy who's really out of whack, then the rest of the team can usually try and sort him out like hey you know right so it's almost kind of like well it's like a tribe yes yes that's what the all blacks have done so the all blacks to me are the number one team in the world that use the psychological their psychological strengths so they are a very spiritual team they have the haka which is a war dance but the haka unites them like nothing um they, they don't own the jerseys, they borrow the jerseys. So it's very much a privilege to them. Nobody looks at themselves as higher than any other person on that team. Everyone has a role to play and everyone is respected. And it's, it's like the Washington Capitals were this year in the Stanley Cup. They, they were gracious to each other. They gave to each other. So nobody became a super taker. And they were able to move as one unit. And there is no team that can be beaten when you're like that. It's it's incredible and very, very tribal. It's interesting. So it's almost like if you're, you know, you have a couple star players um, that you know, obviously they, they will get paid more or yeah. they're expected to perform at a certain level. So they almost have to kind of put ego aside a little bit and, yeah. you know, figure out who they are as a team. Yeah. I I will always hedge. I will always bet on the team that doesn't have the superstars, but they move together. They are together. They think as one versus the team that has two or three superstars, and but they're not one unit. 
I think what you're saying is pretty funny. Like there is um, um, over the last couple of years, you know, the Golden State Warriors yeah. as a basketball team, yeah. as to me, it has been fascinating to watch because it seems like they do have several superstars, um, you know, all stars, actually. So they're all great players, but they play unselfish. They play unselfish. And well, I mean, if you look at the results, sure, you can. There's obviously a lot of things that come into play, so you don't just want to, you know, give credit to this one uh, circumstance. But if you look at uh, the results they've achieved over the last couple of years, which were multiple championships yeah. in a row, there seems to be a connection there too. Yeah, like the captain of the Washington Capitals, watching him transform. He used to be just all about him, and he gave so much to that team this year. He wanted it so badly, but he became a giver, not a taker. And I'm convinced that's why they did so well. So it's interesting you said that. It's not always necessarily up to the head coach to kind of no. uh, get get a culture like that going. No, no, no. Um, at that level, no, not necessarily. At young level, yeah, for sure. Like at teenage level or developmental level, yeah, definitely. You've got to know that your teammates have your back and that you it's a trust thing. Right. And if you can't trust your teammates to do what they need to do in a game it's just like a relationship <laughs> it's just it's not going to work out in the long run trust is everything yeah yeah, yeah. super interesting mm-hmm. so maybe uh, let's talk about kind of along those lines how athletes are dealing with failure oh. like our society um I don't think they understand that word very well. Failure um, is attached to such a negative meaning. and um, But failure is, is learning. Failure is figuring stuff out. Failure is problem solving. But there's so much pressure not to fail. It's like if I said to you, don't think about white elephants. First thing that pops in your head is white elephants. Right. So if you tell an athlete... Don't fail. The brain doesn't understand negation. So it doesn't understand don't. It just understands that word fail. And if you have attached in your belief system, failure is bad. Um, it's just not a, it's not the best way to perform under pressure. It's not a tenable strategy in the long run, right? No, no, no. Because it's too much pressure. You, you so you become so afraid to fail that you won't even try. And once that once you're in that mindset, it's uh, the downhill slope. So this is interesting. There is um there there are two well, I guess you can call them quotes um, that I've picked up from uh, Dan Paff, who's a who's a um, world class track and field coach. And the way he described it, he kind of has these two categories, which is the pessimist athlete and hmm. the optimist athlete. Um, And he describes it, so the pessimist athlete attributes causes of negative outcomes to permanent and uncontrollable pervasive factors, whereas the the optimist athlete attributes causes of negative outcome to temporary, changeable, and specific factors. So it's almost a way, you know, or something goes wrong. Uh, and then they start blaming, oh, well, my, my camp or the coach or this thing, oh, my, my team else didn't cooperate, blah, blah, blah. Like all of, the, all of these, well, essentially finger pointing, right? At, 
as opposed to looking at it and being like, well, maybe it was this situation, right, um, on that day. So it, my warm-up wasn't going the way it's supposed to be. But there, those are very specific tangibles that were, well, almost exclusive to that moment. Mm-hmm. So it's not that they they eventually fall into this pattern of, oh my God, like I failed this competition. Like mm-hmm. for them, it's like, okay, this is done. They do a, they do an analysis. They look at what went wrong. Why did it go wrong? And then you take these information and try to prepare, you know, going forward. It's very interesting what you just said at the beginning with the pessimist and optimist in psychology with general public. There's um, depressives, like uh, the state of depression, and it's linked to a global stable state. And what that means is global is um, everyone else's fault and stable won't ever change versus um, somebody who has an unstable internal view who says, it's what can I do? How can I control? What am I in control of? And that was that that was temporary. So that it, unstable. Um, and you also mentioned about um, the wind and the, the rain. And so what I try and teach my athletes, and I think this is an absolute critical point to everybody in the world, figure out what you have control over. Figure out what you don't have control over. Right. Leave the uncontrollables as white noise and figure out what you can control. And then and then that's, you know, within your power. And the other thing that I think is really important for athletes to understand is every single competition that happens to you. If you're a professional athlete, you might get one that goes perfect. But basically it's a problem-solving exercise. There will always be hurdles, something not right. Oh, I left this running shoe. You know, anything, anything. And so your um, the point of the race, the competition, or whatever you're in, is to be able to solve the problem instantly and move forward. All right. So I'm assuming that something, um, I mean, if we look at, uh, there is a couple of really interesting, like the Rocky Road papers and um, uh, Super Champions, so um, some scientific papers that kind of touch on the difference the differences between um, high performers, mm-hmm. almost. So mm-hmm. they call them almost. That maybe um, you know, they they win every now and then, but they're very inconsistent. And then the super champions and the super champions seem to seem to be the kind of people that early on in their development they were actually exposed to quite a bit of quite a bit of problems um to solve along the way right so it wasn't just like 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 a clear path as opposed to the athlete that maybe god-given talent um you know physical ability things always came easy until if that wasn't the case anymore once they essentially competed at the highest level um, they had nothing to kind of cope with um, or deal with uh, those those problems um, that they were being faced with, um, especially when it came, when it comes to failure. Yeah, it's all about resiliency. It's all about persistency, resiliency. And too many kids, I, I've seen this in gymnastics. You get a little kid, and gymnastics is such a young sport, but you kids develop differently at different ages. But you get the young kid under the age of 10, he's a superstar. 
but everything has come to him so easily. And then all of a sudden he hits a growth spurt or a new skill and he just collapses mentally because he's like, well, I, I must, I must not be good anymore because I can't get it like that. Whereas the kid who's had to put in his time, be patient, figure things out. He's the one that's going to have the mental toughness to be able to ride it out to the top. So it's the same thing. Um, I think you and I were talking about this one time with um, like letting kids fail, let let them fail because they're brilliant problem solvers if you let them. Right. And I mean, just thinking back on my own experience, um, you know, playing sports, I think the most memorable things um, where I actually felt like I learned the most, there were always the instance where something went terribly wrong. Yeah. And, you know, like, yeah, sure. I do. I do remember the victories and the, you know, the fun that you've had along the way and, um, and all, and all that stuff, but really like sort of the things that you take away from and that you, you know, you meditate, you meditate (laughs) over and over. Um, those a lot of times are associated with some type of failure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like when you win a race, your ego is flying high. (laughs) You're like, I'm so good. But you don't learn. You don't even pause for reflection. You're so in the moment. That, that, I mean, it's a dopamine hit. Who doesn't like to win? We, as an athlete, you wouldn't be doing it if you didn't. It's a, and it's an addiction. Winning is an addiction. It feels so good. You want it again and again and again. But um, the losing is where you sit back and go, wow, where did I go wrong on that one? How come that happened? If, if you are taught that or maybe you've learned to do that, but... You don't wallow in the, I'm, it doesn't become, I'm a loser. You can't take it as on as a personal attribute. It has nothing to do with you as a person, whether you win or lose. But if you can take it and take that experience, you will learn so much. And, and those are the ones that have reached the top. Right. Now, if we look at developmental athletes, right, at a little bit of a younger, younger age, um, I mean, do you see essentially athletes feel uncomfortable putting themselves out there and actually trying hard in front of others because they're more worried about how they look um, than actually trying yeah right so what do you think is that um, like where does that come from is that the environment that Mm -hmm. the coach has created in that particular position or i think so maybe when you are results orientated i'll give you an example they did a study with math And they took two groups and gave them a math exam. Very easy math exam. Group A, they said, it's all about the result. Really important, your score. Group B, they said, don't care about your result. We just want to see how you do. It's not important. We just want you to try. Well, fine. They both did the two exams. Um, And then they gave them a harder exam. And group A was told, you know, group A didn't even try. They, they were so scared of failing and getting a bad result, they didn't even attempt. Group B, they, they just went for it and they tried it and tried it. So if a coach is so fixated on the end result, then, of course, it creates an environment of fear if you fail. Whereas if the coach creates an environment of curiosity and let's just see what people can do, we don't care what the result is, but let's just play. Let's just see how this goes. Then kids will kids will try, and because it's it's fun, the kids are curious, naturally curious. They want to see what they can do. 
But if they're if they're told, but if you don't get that jump this far and you failed, who's gonna who's in the right mind's gonna try that? That's you know that's a kid's and that's the kid's brain doing self preservation. It's not the kid having a weak character. It's his brain trying to keep his whole psyche and ego intact. So. Do you think, and I guess this is a very broad question, but in terms of the whole trying, failure, do, do you see a difference in terms of male or female athletes? That's a very interesting question. Yes, I do. Um, with female athletes, they're still a bit more people pleaser there it's very interesting i I've, i think males and females compete differently I, I i'm not so sure females know how to compete naturally males do like for example m men can go on the you know football pitch or rugby pitch or whatever and they can just nail each other and then go for beer after but that's physical aggression that boys tend to have you know a bit more naturally whereas girls they use relational aggression so girls have a harder time um, competing and also with girls you know they want to be friends with their with their teammates and stuff and if they beat them well are, am I still going to be loved or respected by my friends and so I find with a lot of girls they'll hold back and they'll they'll be a, they'll be scared of being ostracized or being pushed out of the group if they try really hard whereas boys boys are like come on let's let's see how much we can do it's, it's I think it's more of a kind of a natural state so what we have to do with girls I think is teach them that you can be on now some female athletes definitely have learned this like Serena Williams and her sister they do not hold punches when they play each other but they are best friends off the pitch so they are a perfect example that girls can do it too but their girls aren't quite as natural at it as boys I find That's really interesting. There's um, um, there's one quote by um, the women's softball coach out of um, Arizona um, that kind of really stuck with me and I think describes what you just said perfectly. And he said, um, so his name is Mike Andrea, and he said, women need to feel good to perform good and men need to perform good to feel good. That's very good. That's perfect. Yes, yes. So coaching females you got to talk to them a bit differently. You got to nurture them a bit differently versus the, the boys or the male. Yeah, for sure. That's a very good quote. I like that one. <clears throat> Now, if we look at failure as a whole, you know, it, within, within an athlete's career, um, failure could also be like, or some people might look at it as kind of overcoming a bad injury, right? I'm sure you've, you've dealt with athletes that have been hurt and um, are trying to get back. Mm -hmm. And as, you know, strength and conditioning coaches, one of the things um, for us, obviously, you know, working with, the, th working with um, the therapist, whether it be the physio, chiropractor, whoever else is seeing that athlete mm -hmm. uh, after a traumatic injury, I believe some, like, there, is, th there have to be certain things you have to address in the process to make sure before you put an athlete back out there to compete, that they're not just, let's say, physically ready. Like, yes, maybe we got them to sprint um, as fast as they could before, maybe um, even faster. Um, maybe they can jump you know, yeah. higher, um, change direction better. All of those things, they are, they are stronger. Mm -hmm. Now, what about these athletes actually being in the right mindset to go out there? 
That's a really good question. So there's some stuff coming out about PTSD. So that's post-traumatic stress disorder that an athlete will suffer after a big injury. Really? Yeah. So that's really good point because the athlete tends to, if they haven't dealt with it mentally, like they haven't processed that whole experience, just like being in a car accident, just like visual or being in a bombing situation, it's trauma and it's trauma to the athlete's life. And so they can be triggered quite easily or they, they carry this fear that they're going to re-injure themselves. So they'll hold back. They, you know, they, they won't quite let it go. They won't trust in their bodies anymore. So, yeah, that's a very interesting point. They, they, mentally, they've got to deal with the injury. Yeah, there's some very interesting work being done with PTSD and, and trauma, and it's called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization. And, uh, sorry, desensitization retraining. And it, by doing certain techniques, then the trauma is uh, displaced in a different part of the brain. So I haven't done it with athlete yet, but I plan to. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And the EMDR is a very uh, psychological training um, that um, we use just in the general population for for trauma, all sorts of trauma. Now, as a as a lay person, such as ourselves, we're obviously not um, and ourselves i'm talking about strength and conditioning coaches mm -hmm. most of us are not trained mm -hmm. classically in sports psychology mm -mm. um are there strategies things tools that we can use to kind of help our athletes incorporate that in the training process um in terms of rehabilitation when they when they're trying to come back and play their sport and compete again i i think one of the most important things a coach can do is not avoid the subject Like, don't talk about how the injury happened. So for some people, it's not a good idea to go in the past. It just re-traumatizes re them. So when I work with trauma victims, I spend a lot of time grounding. But that's, that's a whole different technique and just another area completely. But if, you know, asking, asking the athlete... First of all, I got to say one thing. One of the best ways you can avoid PTSD is if right when the injury happens or right when the trauma happens, um, a lot of times it gets stuck in the brain if, if, if somebody doesn't check in with them. So for example, somebody's in a car accident and then they're just left at the side of the road. But all somebody has to do is go up to them, maybe, very individual, individual thing, but put their hand on their shoulder and say, are you okay? Or with the coach, if they're, if they've been you know, injured badly, just, you know, be with them, stay with them in that moment. But working with them later on, if they need to talk about it, to listen to them, you can't, you're not going to fix them. You don't want to fix, you just want to listen. Um, and, um, and then if they, if you feel they haven't gotten over it, just talk to a sports psychologist or psychologist and or out to somebody who knows yeah, what they're doing because that can stick in the brain for a very long time and that can hold an athlete back and they'll never recover right especially if it's a traumatic injury right yes yes or if they've had multiple ones yes for sure definitely yeah that's a good question a very good question 
Now, <clears throat> just um, to kind of you know piggyback off that a little bit, um, we when we're looking at some um, some athletes, like obviously you know if we talk about trauma, <laughs> there are like trauma can have can show itself in you know multiple ways, yeah. and what I always find super interesting trying to get to know my athletes is um well what what is their background really you know what's the household they grew up in um where like you know what kind of what kind of personality do they have mm-hmm. um are they are they more like you know introvert do they like to you know be out there go you know a little bit more extroverted now some information especially when it comes to trauma i think for me and i'm still struggling with this trying to get to the bottom of some of the issues my athletes are dealing with but you know somebody or most people they especially like younger younger kids or younger athletes they will not open up about um oh yeah my dad's an alcoholic or you know i got beat this many times growing up right um so now i look at it well if i don't have the information how can i how can i make a decision um without knowing all this stuff is that just something that kind of ha- has to come out in the process once they start trusting you more? Yeah. So it, it basically all comes back down to trust yeah. within yeah. that relationship yeah. between the coach and the athlete. If they've had trauma at home, their trust has been broken. By their, maybe by the care, caregiver, primary caregiver, that's pretty traumatizing to a child. And they lose childhood. You, you're teaching them how to trust, and you only do that through experiences and um so if, as a coach, if you can just say and do what you say, right? So you, you keep yourself honest with your athlete and checking in with them. If you are consistently saying something and then behaving in that way that you've said, like, for example, hey, I'll pick you up for, and we'll go for like a, a, a milkshake. And then you actually follow through. That kid goes, oh, I, I can trust this person. He has done what he said he was going to do. Because a lot of times it, with trauma, they're let down over and over and over again. So they don't believe adults. Right, there's, there's a constant disappointment. Constant disappointment. But, I mean, to be honest, I see a lot of coaches that are already doing some psychology. They just don't know that they're doing it. Like what you've just said, checking in, understand, listening to the athlete and I'm sure you've had athletes come in and go and they are just emotionally done. And then you, you revise the program accordingly, you know, not making it easier, or, you know, not being weak, weak with them, but understanding that they've got lives for, for example, like the, um, the whole thing with elite athletes is they're not balanced. They don't have balanced lives to be an elite athlete. You're not a balanced person. And now what I find interesting is is the unbalanced person pulled into that arena or does the arena create, I think, a bit of both? So the environment is not a balanced environment. You're, you're training 25 hours a week. You're, you know, you're, you're trashing your body. It's not for health. It's for performance. Um, maybe socially you're cutting back on that area of your life. Maybe academically I can't quite or whatever, cognitively. So your life is not going to be balanced, but... If you've got a coach who's actually going to be present with you, you walk into the gym and your coach actually hears you. That is massive to an athlete. And I, I got to say something about this trust thing. So Bob Bowman, Michael Phelps coach, he has said over and over again, 
forget the food, forget the weights, forget even the training. If you have a trusting relationship between athlete and coach, the sky is your limit. Like there is, there is so much you can do if that athlete looks at you and, and goes, he's never going to ask me to do something I can't do. And they'll, they'll just blow you away with that trust. Yeah, this is so interesting, the whole the whole trust question, because I've obviously, like, you know, over the years, I've dealt with some athletes where I couldn't seem to establish that connection. And I could feel it, right? There was something like, there are certain athletes where, you know, over the years, we just had this, this relationship, we were at a point, like, I know some of them would have, you know, broken their backs for me, literally. Yep. Right. Um, and then others, like, for whatever reason, I wasn't able to kind yeah. of, you yeah. know, foster foster yeah. that relationship that allowed them to open up to me as much, yeah. and yes. yeah, eventually it kind of yeah. That's so interesting fell apart. because relationships are two. So I always I always say to people that in a relationship, there's three entities: there's person A, there's person B, and then there's this relationship. You both own this relationship. So what you have said about as one athlete not quite opening up he wasn't coming to the table he wasn't taking the risk granted he probably had bad experiences or whatever but if he had just taken the risk with you because you were you were coming to the table but it has to come from both ways you can't just right can't, so it's, relations are not just one person right there's responsibilities on both ends there's responsibility at both ends and you own this thing this relationship belongs to both of you so you both need to nurture it you can't just let one person do all the work and you be the hanger on or that way it won't it's it, the power becomes imbalanced and you know this is really interesting because it makes me think about you know some of the athletes that when they first come in and maybe that's like you said because of prior experience mm-hmm. but maybe they've had lo- loads of coaches they just told them what to do yeah. and that's all they heard like well you know i'm i'm just here to execute and then i'm and then i'm out of the gym again um, as opposed to kind of almost taking ownership and being involved yeah. in that process, right? Yeah. They're not, they're not engaged. They're not, they're, they're robotic. That won't, that won't create peak performance. Yeah, no, there's got to be engagement on both sides. Um, and the other thing I find with that kind of relationship, eventually the coach will ask the athlete to do something and maybe he'll fail at it. But there's no buy-in by the athlete. So then maybe the athlete will take the failure on as, hmm, he asked me to do this and I can't do this. What does that mean? Whereas if there's this symbiosis between the athlete and coach and the coach says, uh, I'd like you to do this today. Granted, I don't think that kind of coach would ever ask the athlete to do something because he's so in tune with the athlete and what he's able to do and the athlete's so in tune with the coach and what he knows and his experience that... I don't know if that would, you know, and if, if, if the failure happened, it would be an experiment. Oh, right. Okay. Well, what did we do wrong? Not what did you do wrong? What did we do wrong? Right. Right. So it's, yeah, it's looking at it together, right? Yes. And then it, you own this precious thing. You're both putting into it and therefore you both get out of it. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's a, that's a really nice way to look at it. Now, um, just to back off, uh, backtrack real quick, um, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about um, the whole balance idea. Yeah. So, 
you know, there is a, there are obviously athletes, like you said, at the elite level, um, you know, due to the training, everything like you, 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 you're going to neglect friends, family, potentially, um, because this, whatever it is that you do takes up so much, so much time, so much effort. Um, like you, you know, you really have to invest into that thing in order to be successful at the, at the highest level. Or I guess what happens when you retire? What happens when that thing that you used to do, um, which pretty much defined who you are, right? I'm athlete X, like this is what I do. The big problem, the real big problem. I have to say one thing before I go on to the retirement about what you've just said. So I had one athlete. She was just Muay Thai fighter. Amazing, amazing. Um, But people think... Okay, when you're in that environment, elite, super highly charged, stress, whatever, you can go too far. Like you need you need time for your brain, especially, to do something that does not involve your sport. So, for example, Richie McCaw again, right? He captain of the rugby, All Blacks, amazing number one player of the year after year after year, and they've been calling him you know, like the player of the century and blah blah blah, but. What he used to do is he used to fly gliders. So what's very interesting about that is his sport was team, group, uh, very physical, very, you know, charged up. Gliding is completely the opposite. It's solo. You're totally by yourself. And it's, there's absolutely no physical, there's no, not, not even any noise but the wind. But he still had to use his brain in order to be able to read the winds and be able to understand the patterns of, the, of weather or whatever so that he was safe. So he still had to have his brain engaged, but in a completely different way. So that was his balancing. And Dan Carter, he, when he was up and coming, he was, you know, superstar in New Zealand. Everyone was like, great. And so what happens to a lot of athletes is as they climb the ladder and they start to get more recognition, they go, well, I got to try harder. Well, I got to put more effort in. So what he did is he said, well, I better quit drinking. I'm not going to have any more beers. So for a whole year, so I'm not drinking anymore. And he tanked. And he realized after that year, he goes, that's my downtime. That's my, that's my escape from all of this cooker, this pressure cooker stuff. I think that is absolutely critical to athletes at that level that they find something to do that is not anything to do with their sport and that gives their brain a break. The way you talk about it, it almost makes me think back a little bit. Um, the conversation we had earlier about, um, you know, sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system. Like if you're constantly obsessing about this one thing and almost, well, you are stressing out about it, right? Yeah. Um, and you don't have this off switch or, and I guess that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that activity where you kind of go on your own time, that's probably different for every individual yes. for some yes. people that could be reading a book yes. that could be listening to music do you know do like go on a glider yeah. do that yeah. um but almost having that part you know that part of your um you know like who you are of yes. who you are yes. um just to yeah yep. be able to escape yeah because a lot of athletes go oh but if i let go of my training 
I'm going to fall behind or I'm going to lose the next next match. No, no, it's the exact opposite. You, you need that moment away. Right. And a lot of times some of these athletes, they probably are training 25, 30 hours a week anyways. Yeah. Right. So that, if anything else, the way I look at it from a, you know, strength conditioning standpoint, that might actually help boost your recovery to some extent. Yes. Yes. It's, it's mental recharging, right? It's just getting away from whatever you're super into and just doing something different. Okay. Um, last thing Mm. I'd like to touch on real quick, because I know we're on a timeline here, (laughs) um, uh, is sort of this. Um, I, I want to call it phenomenon of lots of, especially younger kids these days, they come in and they'll say, oh, well, or parents even, you know, my kid has OCD or ADHD. Um, and, you know, those seem to come up more and more. Like if I, if I just think back 10, 15 years ago, there wasn't much, there wasn't as much talk about it. No, what are your thoughts, I guess, on, um, on that whole development that we've seen over the last couple of years? I think it's overdiagnosed personally and professionally. I do. Um, I think our school system doesn't support kids who are got an active brain, ADHD. I've got it. I mean, I used sport to calm myself down, but we've taken away playtime. We've taken away recess. We've taken away dodgeball <laughs> in this name of safety, whatever. Um, we've limited physical education, and I think that's one of the reasons that kids can't sit still. The brain, the only reason we have a brain is to move. People go, oh, no, 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 but if I'm reading, I'm like, you're using the eye muscles in your eyeballs. Oh, if I'm talking, yeah, you're using your lip muscles and your tongue muscles. Those are all muscles that your brain are moving. So the only reason to have a brain is to move. However, in saying that, I love working with athletes. So I call it quirky brains. Okay. I think those are gifted kids. How many other people, besides somebody who maybe has a little OCD, is going to get on the hill and ride, you know, the snowboard and do the trick over and over and over and over and over again? Right. So that can almost work to your advantage, right? Totally. However, again, it's like... It's like emotions. It's your gift, but you have to learn about it and control it. And you have to know when it tips over into obsessive, right? It's called obsessive compulsive disorder, but it can get, it can get too far. So, but it's also a gift and ADHD, like Michael Phelps, right? Who else is going to swim 10,000 meters a day besides a kid who needs that kind of release or likes the feel of the water or, you know, I mean, those guys have gifted brains. They are anomalies. They are outliers. They are freaks of nature. They are one in a hundred years, whatever. They have it all. They have the physiology. They have the anthropometric measurements. They have the brain. Um, but I wish we would put more, um, I wish we'd put more recess or more movement back into kids' lives. It's, uh, that's, that's. That's my answer, controversial as it may be. Oh, like I full heartedly agree. I mean, you know, especially with the younger athletes that I see, you know, coming through from the school system, whatever, um, there is 
can look at it from a movement literacy standpoint, yeah. um, there are glaring deficits. Yes. Um, you know, some kids like they have trouble running backwards, going yep. sideways. Um, so, you know, from an athlete, like even from an athletic development standpoint, um, for us as strength and conditioning professionals, we're almost like, well, okay, most sports require athletes to have a large toolbox to solve quote unquote, those problems in front of them. Right. Um, yeah. and if they, if they only show up with like, you know, two, like two, two, three tools in their box. Yeah. yeah well, how much of a chance of success do these kids have in the long term if they no. don't start developing it and expanding on that and the other thing i'm really against is streamlining young where you only play hockey yeah. or you only play one sport i i and i am so against um non-play i think kids learn just by playing and to take that away from kids and um Again, that's where you develop in the motor skills, the smoothness of moving without having somebody. It's basically whether you're going to be intrinsically or extrinsically motivated. So if you've had somebody teach you how to hit a golf ball and you've had this voice in your head holding you to hold the club this way and stand that way with your knees bent this way, you will break down under pressure. Whereas if you've learned it, you know, sorry, that's extrinsically. If you've learned it intrinsically, meaning I'm just going to hit this ball and see what happens. I'm going to hit it again and see what happens. Uh, maybe somebody will give me one pointer, but I'm going to hit it again and try it again. You won't break down under pressure. Isn't that Bubba Watson who um, never took a golf lesson in his life? Yeah. yeah. Right? I mean, we have things called mirror neurons. And so this is the one thing I'm sorry. I wanted to bring this up about visualization. If any of you listeners out there are thinking about like visualizing don't ever watch somebody bad <laughs> only watch somebody do the skill really really well because your mirror neurons will pick that up and they will pick it up insidiously and if you go if you watch youtube video of tiger woods or whoever uh hit the golf ball really well and then you go out and hit it without thinking without pausing you will hit it better this is really cool because um, one of my colleagues just men mentioned that recently to me. So us as um, you know, strength coaches, yeah. um, we sometimes like to use video yes. to show athletes what they do well and then yeah. also their mistakes. And then he was he was essentially pointing out to me, well, if you show them a mistake, maybe show them once. Yes. Uh, but don't leave them alone with it and have them watch that over and over and over. Very do good. it the wrong way. Very good. Yep. Like. Show them, okay, this is what you were doing, but this is what you want to be doing. Gotcha. And the same thing with visualization. Um, if you want to, you want to visualize the perfect race. And the idea is you create this um, like meditation in your brain. But if like we used to do it in gymnastics in, with gymnasts, if they get on the beam and fall, well, you got to start all over again. Because you do not want to have that in the brain, that that's the pattern that will happen. You want to see the routine perfectly. So like Michael Phelps, again, he used to listen to a video or an audio recording of the perfect race every night before he went to sleep. There was no electronics in between when he listened to this and he did his visualization and when he went to sleep. That's super critical. <laughs> Can't have a blue light in between that process because then the brain, when you're sleeping, it memorizes 
you know, the brain is when it sleeps, it, it downloads information you've gotten and then it pairs it with what it's got in the brain. And if you're pairing it with this perfect routine over and over and over and over again, it just happens without you thinking about it in the competition. Well, I've heard of um, um, this phenomenon <clears throat> in in regards to motor learning. Mm-hmm. Um, if you you know you get exposed to um, to a new motor skill um, in practice, you know you go to sleep at night, and for I, I don't know the exact mechanism, but it seems like that particular pattern is being repeated through you well by your brain over and over at a almost like um at a faster speed so this is where you know this is why i keep preaching these basics to athletes i mean if you you know you can train all you want if you don't get your eight nine hours of sleep every night like what are you doing yeah no no sleep critical (laughs) almost more important than food like we will die if you don't sleep for there's a disease i can't remember the name people can't sleep and they die they go insane and die wow so it's something you have control over so make it a priority you just it's being an elite athlete means some sacrifices you don't get anything for free nothing's going to be given to you and you don't deserve anything nothing's you're not entitled to anything so you got to put the details in it's like the british team their 2012 olympics that was their motto details matter so nothing was left unturned nothing uh gymnastics or all sport all sport all sport like they they went nuts on tiny details every single detail in every single sport and they you know they put money into it right 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 but they did very well in 2012 right this is fascinating. Um, so I could I could you know keep going forever, but I think this is a good point to um, to, to finish. Yeah, to sleep right uh, to finish today's episode. And um, last but not least, where can people find out more about you, your services? Is the email probably yeah, the best? Yeah, I'm uh, rebuilding my website. I was in Asia for 17 years, and so I'm rebuilding it and it hasn't finished yet. So okay, email perfect. Address is good. Excellent. So we'll put that into the show notes. Well, thank you so much for coming You're on, so Laura. Welcome. Um, this has been so fun. <laughs> this has been great. Really I've learned fun. a whole a whole bunch, and I'm probably going to listen to this again a few times. <laughs> you, you've um, taught me a lot, Dorian. <laughs> so thanks, and we'll leave it at that.